Welcome to a special episode of the podcast. If you want to listen to my commentary on Matthew, you'll have to scroll to episode one and start there. This is not the regular commentary on Matthew, but rather a special episode about a theme or aspect of Matthew. I wrote this episode a few weeks ago, before the most recent explosion of violence and bloodshed in Gaza and southern Israel began. I had been editing and rewriting it and re-recording it, and then I hesitated to publish the episode when the horrible violence exploded, but then realized that the final Matthew text that I cite in it, that of Jesus crying out from the cross that God has abandoned him, is extremely relevant. It is in times like these that it does seem that God is nowhere to be found, that God has abandoned us. When innocent children and civilians are slaughtered, even those wanting and working for peace, when hospitals and apartment buildings are flattened by bombs, where is God? Where are those twelve legions of angels that Jesus said could come to the rescue? It appears that God either won't send them, or perhaps can't send them. It appears that Father God above has forsaken us. Since the text, therefore, is relevant, here is the episode. I've spent my whole life trying to understand the gospel story. I was raised in an evangelical household, the son of a missionary and a pastor. So even though I earnestly struggled to understand and hear the story, I suffered from two handicaps. One was that I read the story through a religious lens, and the other was that I became overfamiliar with the story, unable to hear it with fresh ears. And both of these things combined to make it so that I was not shocked by the most shocking parts of the story. And I think that this sort of reading, religious and overfamiliar, and unable to be shocked by or even to notice the most shocking parts of the story, is the most common type of reading of the gospel, especially by those of us in the church, but even, I've noticed, by many scholars as well. The more I try to unlearn the religious way of reading the story, the more I try to hear it with fresh ears, the more I realize how shocking a story it really is, how much it turns conventional notions of our world upside down and inside out. And I know that in this podcast I've stressed mostly the gospel story's sociopolitical inversion of the world, but I think that the story also overturns conventional ideas about God, what God is like, and where God is found. I've lately been reflecting on how the Gospel of Matthew tells a powerful story full of powerfully deep symbolism of a hero calling his followers to heroic, radical discipleship to participate in the inbreaking of a radically more just and equal society. And also how the story includes the realism of people failing to follow this call to heroic, radical discipleship. And not just any people, 
but the people you'd think would be the ones not to fail. And not only do they fail, they fail at the very times when they should be succeeding. And it's all the main characters. I mean, all of them. Before I get to the biblical part of the episode, though, let me start with a contemporary story. It's a true story, one that I experienced and participated in. It's a story that came to mind while I was thinking about all of this. And I'm going to tell two versions of the story. Here's the first one. We spoke truth to power. We began with a press conference in a nearby park, and then we marched over to our congressman's office without warning him that we were coming, and spent almost an hour telling him about the brutal occupation of the Palestinian people, a brutal occupation that he supported. Each one of us took a turn providing details, analysis, and stories. That day we stormed his office and spoke prophetically to a U.S. congressman. Now, that's a fair summary of what happened one day over 20 years ago here in Pasadena, but it skips over a few details that, depending on what your purpose in telling the story might be, could be important to include. So here's another way of describing what happened that day. We had organized a press conference at Central Park with probably too many speeches. We started in the late afternoon and needed to get to Adam Schiff's office before the 5 o'clock closing time. The final speaker kept droning on. People's attention had already significantly waned after the first four speakers, and the time was bumping up against 5 p.m. We couldn't get the final speaker to wrap it up. She was either oblivious to our signals, or more likely so intent on making the points that she wanted to make that she just kept pontificating away. So some of us decided that we needed to start marching to Schiff's office if we were going to make it on time. We gathered the people and began the march, even as our final speaker stubbornly continued with her speech, refusing to stop even as her audience walked away. And the weird thing is that I don't think we actually made it to Schiff's office on time. The office was a block and a half north of the park, and by the time we gathered everyone and made it to the front door of the office, I think it was past five o'clock. But the staffers were still there waiting for us, as it turned out. Our visit was supposed to be a surprise, but one of the local media outlets that we had contacted for the press conference had tipped off Schiff's office when calling them to get a statement. So the staff had stuck around waiting for us. With bottled water and cookies. Well, we marched into Schiff's office and announced why we were there. Adam Schiff was not actually present himself, probably because he had an event or meeting somewhere else. When you make a surprise visit to an elected official, there's no way to know if they'll even be in the office, and they usually aren't. So we could only address his staff, but I was video recording the whole thing, so we made sure that he got a recording so that he heard what we had said. As we were about to get started with our truth-telling, the staff offered the tray of cookies and the bottled water. And I was thinking in my head that surely none of us was going to take any refreshments from them. We were not there to snack, and we surely weren't going to be seduced by their sloppy bribes of cookies and... But just as I was thinking that, I saw multiple hands reaching for the cookies. I've since learned that there is a type of personality that can eat the cookies 
and bite the hand that offered them. And that sort of personality tends to belong to the sort of people who show up to events like the one we were doing that day. They tend to be the passionate and tireless activists, always strident in their words and actions, never apologizing, never second-guessing themselves. Well, the staff stood there patiently and politely as we one by one vented our rage at Congressman Adam Schiff, who, although he may be a hero to many people in recent years for standing up against Donald Trump, was to us at the time, and really still today, a perpetuator of violence against the Palestinian people. We went on so long that I ran out of videotape. Yes, this was back in the days of videotape. I mean, I think there were digital recorders back then, but they were very expensive, so we had an old-school video recorder that used tape. When we had finally exhausted ourselves and spent our rage, we filed out of the office. The staffers politely thanked us for our comments. Okay, so that's two versions of the same story. The first one is passable for a short, pithy retelling of the events of the day, and usually how we retell the gospel. But the second one grounds the story more in the real world, a world in which no one is perfectly good, and no one is perfectly bad, and where even when we try to do the right thing, even when we accomplish the right thing, we do it very humanly, with all the mistakes that humans tend to make, which a closer, more careful reading of the gospel reveals. All in all, we did do what we had set out to do on that day over 20 years ago. We accomplished our mission for the day, but it was not a perfect execution, and our target was not a perfect enemy. I tell this story because Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, tells his disciples to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he twice calls the disciples to take up their crosses to follow him to the cross. And he tells the rich young man that to be perfect, he must sell all his possessions and give the money to the poor. And then proceeds to tell his disciples that it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible for a rich man to enter God's new society. And by the way, that's not exactly great news for most of us in the first world today who are, by worldwide standards, rich. But you may have noticed as we were journeying through the Gospel of Matthew in this podcast, that there are exceptions to these high ideals. Just about no one in the story is perfect. Maybe not even Jesus, our protagonist. And maybe not even God. Let's start with everyone else first. Of course, we have the male disciples who frequently don't understand what Jesus is talking about, and rather than following him to the cross, abandon him. They flee when the Romans arrest Jesus. And the very last thing we hear about them in the story, when Jesus appears to them on a mountain after the resurrection in the very last scene, is that some of them doubted. That's the very last thing we hear about the disciples. And among the disciples, Peter is the chief exception of them all. Peter seems to be the most important disciple, their chief representative. 
Peter tells Jesus, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus replies, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter is the superstar disciple, the rock of the church, the one with the keys to the kingdom. But right after saying all of that, in the very next passage, Jesus calls him Satan. Jesus is telling his disciples that he will be arrested and martyred in Jerusalem, to which Peter responds by pulling Jesus aside and telling him that it must never happen. Jesus then responds to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. This is right after Jesus telling him that he has the authority to make things reverberate in heaven. Peter then goes on to deny Jesus three times. But enough of Peter. People are imperfect, but Jesus' teaching is what counts. Jesus says that his words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. So his teaching must be the anchor on which the new society is built, right? So what about Jesus' teaching to be perfect, to sell everything and give the proceeds to the poor, and that rich people can't enter God's new society? Well, after Jesus has been crucified, we encounter Joseph of Arimathea, whom we are told is both a disciple of Jesus and a rich man. So I guess rich people can at least take part in this movement for a new society. I guess you don't actually have to be perfect after all. I guess that there is room for process and growth, room for reality. And let's get back to the call to follow Jesus to the cross, a central teaching of what is required for discipleship. Jesus says that if anyone wants to be his disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. But not only do Jesus' male disciples all flee when the time comes to do that, not only does Peter deny Jesus three times, but Jesus himself Praise not to have to go through with the cross. So maybe the teaching about the cross is not absolute. Okay, so the teaching has to be taken in context. Some of it's rhetorical and definitely not absolute in a rigid sort of way. But what about God? And by God, do I mean God the Father or God the Son? or Because Jesus is God the Son, right? Somehow both human and divine. But God the Son doesn't seem to be as perfect as a God should be. I mean, a God with a capital G. Remember the interaction with the Canaanite woman? Right after teaching his disciples and his enemies that what comes out of your mouth is what makes you unclean, Jesus spews unclean, xenophobic insults at this desperate woman who has come to him for help. But perhaps he was just testing her. 
Yet, as I've already mentioned, he also doesn't want to go through with the cross. And then while being crucified, he asks God, we assume God the Father, why he has abandoned him. I mean, what about all of that? And what is even going on? Can God abandon God? Either Jesus, God the Son, is mistaken about being abandoned by God the Father, or he is correct and God the Father has abandoned his Son on a cross. Either way, God has failed. In episode 66, I explained how Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a quote from Psalm 22, a psalm which is attributed to David, so it serves literarily as part of the David motif in Matthew. And also, since a king symbolically embodies his people, and Jesus has already been shown to embody Israel in the Matthew story, and since at the time of Matthew's writing, Israel had undergone its own crucifixion at the hands of the Romans, with thousands of Jews actually being crucified in the year 70 when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Jesus takes up Israel's crucifixion in his own crucifixion, including the feeling that Israel had been abandoned by God. Ancient Jewish writers writing of the destruction of Israel and especially of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, spoke of God having left the temple, the place where God's presence was believed to dwell in Israel. God, they said, had abandoned Israel. So Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When he cries out, he cries the cry of his people. And he cries the cry of every people who are crushed under the boot of an oppressor. And maybe even the cry of all humans suffering wherever we are, in whatever way we suffer. He joins all of us as we cry out. We are suffering. We are dying. Where is God? God has abandoned us. Because often that is our experience, that God has abandoned us. Or at least the God that is above, the sky God that is all-powerful and can do literally anything. That God has abandoned us. The story of Jesus in Matthew is perhaps an answer to that cry. It doesn't try to tell us that God has not abandoned us but rather affirms it. Affirms that the all-powerful, patriarchal sky god has, in fact, abandoned us. And all we are left with is the god that walks among us, suffers with us, and dies with us. And that only with this weak god is our hope of life, our hope of resurrection. Perhaps that is the point of this story. The patriarchal God, the sky God above, is gone. That God is dead. The only God we have 
is a crucified peasant who was crucified because he stood his ground against the powers and authorities of this world. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the other biblical Gospels, doesn't completely abandon the image of the patriarchal God. The term Father is used for God throughout the story, including again at the very end of Matthew, in what is commonly called the Great Commission. But by saying that God is with us in a peasant community organizer who gets crucified and cries out that he has been abandoned by God the Father, the story strikes at the very foundation of patriarchy and sets us on a trajectory to abandon any image of God as a violent patriarchal figure. Perhaps we are being set on a course to see God as love, a power made perfect in weakness. God is not with us to do literally anything we want. God won't literally help us cast a mountain into the sea. And maybe God can't really send 12 legions of angels to save us either. But God is with us in our suffering. God is with us when we extend ourselves in love to establish justice and heal the world. However weak and ineffectual we seem to be, even as we stumble imperfectly, even when we feel abandoned, God is with us. Jesus on the cross with us. Love crucified the hope of resurrection. Thanks for listening. You can send comments or questions to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been a special episode of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.